You are listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Joseph Sacrin. He's a trauma surgeon and creator of the Twitter handle, This Is Our Lane. He talks about his purpose-driven life and how we can all get involved in advocacy. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Bertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. All right. Welcome back. I'm here with a very, very special guest. This is Dr. Joseph Sacrin. He is, uh, he and I actually go way back. We were residents together. I was at Walter Reed and he was at Fairfax and I have nothing but wonderful memories of Dr. Sacrin. Now, welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much, Dr. Retrice. And uh, it's, uh, it's great to see you uh, in this uh, environment. And I always have very fond memories of you as well. Uh, as my chief resident. So, uh, you know, that's always, uh, people always remember how you made them feel. And it was always, always wonderful. So it's so great to see you and congratulations on all your success. You as well. And, you know, I've been following your career um, as you've got along, you know, because when we have these like close circles and all too, and I've just been so impressed with all of the things that you've done. And I know that I only know even just a small portion of the things that you've done. Of course, what stands out to me the most, um, and I already knew your story about, you know, your own um, experience with gun violence, but, you know, you gained a lot of prominence in 2018 in your response to the NRA. And what's really interesting is I was asking a few people around in the OR if they remembered this idea of this is our lane, and a lot of people hadn't. And so I think it's really great for us to kind of you know, refresh everyone's memory about um, this path that we're on currently about gun violence and, and things like that, too. So tell me a little bit about your story about, um, you know, basically, how did you become a trauma surgeon? I know you had a really remarkable path. One of the things that is very clear to me is that, you know, I, I don't really come to this conversation by choice. And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, as you alluded to, uh, I was nearly killed at the age of 17. Uh, after I was shot in the throat with a 38 caliber bullet. Uh, that was an experience, of course, that, you know, none of us in our family would have ever even imagined. Um, and it happened at a at an age where, you know, you're 17. It's like you're living day, day in and day out, day by day, not even realizing that you're mortal, not knowing what you want to do in life. And so it really kind of shaped um, the trajectory of my path. And you know, I'll say like it wasn't immediate in many ways. I mean, I was uh, critically injured. I went to Nova Fairfax Hospital where I had a devastating neck injury. And, uh, you know, Dr. Bob Ahmed was my, my trauma surgeon. Uh, and Dr. D. Mukherjee was my vascular surgeon who ended up repairing my carotid artery. And I was left, you know, overall... Um, you know, whole, so to speak, except for a few uh, sequela, one of which is a paralyzed vocal cord. And, you know, sometimes people can hear the raspiness uh, in my voice, but I was also alive and I wasn't paralyzed and I was given this second opportunity. And I think, um, Dr. Vertrice, when I think about this, you know, that moment when I look back at it, even though I wouldn't wish it upon anyone else, 
while it was one of the most impactful moments of my life because it inspired me to go into medicine. It also inspired me to become a trauma surgeon. And then as I started to kind of go down this, you know, professional path, I started to realize that I had both the opportunity and the responsibility to think beyond the trauma bay or beyond the operating room from a public health and prevention perspective. And that's what really got me working at this kind of intersection of medicine, public health and public policy. Now, um, I read a story uh, about that that I thought was just absolutely fantastic because, you know, one thing that was part of your story um, was you were there and, and they were doing the resuscitation and you recall the trauma surgeon coming here going, what are we doing here, people? And then he like, like unlocks the gurney and like wishes you off to the operating room. I imagine that had to have some sort of impact on you. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, I remember that like yesterday, you know, this happened on September 23rd, 1994 a day, you know, I can't forget, of course. And at that time, and you know, you rotated at Fairfax. So you'll know that like when we rotated there, the trauma surgeons were in house. But, you know, in the mid 90s, they were at home. And in fact, Bob Ahmed, you know, is a general surgeon that was taking trauma call, which was very common. And so he was coming in from home. And at the time, it was the surgical resident plus the emergency medicine resident and there was some dispute as to what should happen and as you know bob ahmed walks in he sees this happening and of course i'm sitting there on the on the gurney you know with this you know gunshot went to the throat with blood spurting out of you know the the top of my neck and he just exactly like you know you described unlocks the gurney and says we're going to the operating room he said something else which i won't say on air but um <laughs> And, you know, he went to the operating room and I remember, you know, lying on the OR stretcher and him looking, you know, at me, like literally right down at me and says, listen, I have to do this to save your life. And, you know, shortly thereafter, I passed out. Um, and of course, you know, you're 17, it's like scary, like you don't know what to expect. You know how the traumas are. There's like, you know, now we know, right, there's like a bunch of people in the room and everyone's doing something differently. Uh, and I, I remember... You know, when I left the hospital, I left with a trach. I had these kind of beet red scars up and down my neck. And I remember one moment I was I was standing in the uh, in the bathroom. I was looking at the mirror, and what I didn't realize is my father was in the corner. And my, I think my dad saw kind of that look of devastation in my eyes, and he said to me, he walked in. He said, "Listen," he said, "What happened to you was terrible, but like you have really two options." The first is like, you can, you know, feel sorry for yourself, which I think is, you know, tough love, especially from like an immigrant dad, right? But I, the second one, you can take this horrible incident and turn it into something positive that impacts the lives of other people. And that's why I've tried to, to work beyond even the bedside, right, to see how I can impact populations, because I've realized that often the best medical treatment is prevention. I mean, so many things that happened to you at 17. And of course, we never choose what our, um, our defining life moment is, you know, how amazing that you turn this tragedy, and you embodied your dad's words, and you became a trauma surgeon yourself. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what you are doing now. 
again, I think it's important to note that like when I first got into this, it was really what I thought was going to be the most gratifying piece was to really be able to give other people the same second chance that I got. And then as I started to kind of go down this path, I realized that there was more to the story. And so, you know, now I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a faculty member at Johns Hopkins Hospital, and uh, I'm the vice chair of clinical operations for the Department of Surgery. And, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a clinical surgeon. So I, you know, take trauma call. I, you know, head up emergency general surgery. And I do elective general surgery as well and have actually um, really enjoyed that. In fact, integrated robotics into my practice a few years back. Uh, and so, you know, being a clinical surgeon is incredibly gratifying and something that I just always found rewarding. And it keeps you, you know, in tune with what's happening at the front line. So that's kind of the clinical piece of, of what I do. Um, now, from like an academic piece and from an advocacy and a policy piece, it's almost like I have like three jobs. <laughs> And it's like these other aspects, which are so critical because, again, like the work that I'm doing, you know, in the trauma bay or in the operating room is critical. But especially as we think about these traumas, like we need to be approaching these from a public health perspective. So I've really tried to develop both the theoretical and practical understanding as it relates to public health and public policy. Um, and part of that was grounded in you know, my training both at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, but also at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And that real theoretical foundation was so monumental because it, it allowed me to see the importance of all these disciplines and how they relate to what we're doing. And then recently, I was fortunate enough to kind of combine that with an experience through the National Academy of Medicine as one of the Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellows, where I spent a year in the U.S. Senate uh, in the office of Senator Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, uh, working on health policy. And in fact, when I started, it was right before COVID. And so that was an incredible year because I had the opportunity um, to really work uh, at a time when uh, the federal policy was so critical to the response that was happening across the country for Americans, you know, uh, in communities all over the US. And, you know, there's a lot that I could say about that year, but maybe I'll leave you with kind of three, you know, broad points that I think I took away from, from the year. The first is that um, it's important for healthcare professionals to be involved in the policymaking process. The, the more that we understand the process, the more we're gonna be involved and it makes the process better. And I think it leads to better legislation. I think the second piece, and you and I were kind of briefly chatting about this before, but it's not just important to have the right idea, but you have to have the right strategy and approach. And we see this all the time, not just in the US Senate, but in our own institutes and, and businesses and environments where having the right idea alone doesn't mean you're gonna succeed. And I think the third, and, and this might be hard to kind of even appreciate during this time of, you know, divisiveness, so to speak, but bipartisanship is, is really important. It's not just a better look for America, it leads to better policy. 
And I was so grateful to see every day, you know, staffers both on both sides of the aisle that would come in really wanting to um, implement policy that would help make this the best country possible. And I think when you think about us as Americans and think about all the issues that we're facing and dealing with, I think there's a lot of commonality. And I don't think that necessarily the end results are that different in general. I think a lot of the difference is how do we get to those end results? And that's where some of the, I think, ideological differences come into play. Yeah, absolutely agree. I mean, I think you have so many excellent points. Now, I know, um, the one thing that uh, that stood out to me is back in 2018, um, you know, there was the the tweet that the NRA said in response to an article about gun control, and I'll read this. It said uh, the NRA says um, someone should tell the self-important anti-gun doctors to stay in their lane. Half of the articles and annals of internal medicine are pushing for gun control. Most upsetting, however, the medical community seems to have consulted no one but themselves. Which, of course, you know, they did us a favor by creating a nice catchphrase that we were able to use. Um, and so, I think you were the uh, the creator of the Twitter handle. This is our lane. Is that correct? Yeah. So I so I created the um, the handle of uh, this is our lane. Um, and I just want to say that when you look at so a couple things about this. The first is this was a, a very uh, interesting and important moment because so many of us within healthcare, right, um, have been taking care of these patients day in and day out. We've been kind of central to talking to these moms and dads and explaining to them that, you know, their child was injured or even worse, their child is never coming home again. And anyone that understands this complex public health problem will, of course, understand that it is not going to be solved by any one person or one organization. It requires a collective multidisciplinary group that takes a multifaceted approach. And, and so you can imagine a lot of us were incensed when we saw that type of rhetoric. And I, I will tell you that, you know, while I started the handle, this movement isn't, you know, just me. This movement and it's not just doctors. This movement um, was successful and is successful because there were so many people that stood up and said enough is enough, mm -hmm. that stood up and said, no, like, you know, let me tell you actually what we're facing. And this was doctors and nurses, respiratory therapists, researchers, right, technicians, people from all walks of life. And by the way, people both domestically and abroad. And in fact, some of the most interesting responses were from people who lived overseas that said, actually, Joe, like we don't know what you're facing, right? Because they don't see the type of gun violence that we see in America. And I think if I can say one point that really summarizes the success of this movement, it's because we didn't come out and just share the data and science with people. The data and science, of course, as a scientist and researcher, I understand how critical and important that is. But the data and the science does not change the hearts and minds of people. It's, it's that emotion. And as you know, one of the professors from 
the Kennedy School, Marshall Gans, who's a public narrative expert, you know, always says if you want to go from value to um, uh, to action, it's done through emotion, and that means being able to tell your story, right? The value is the why; it's the purpose. And I think a lot of times, you know, uh, we don't always communicate what's happening in ways that resonate with the public. And I think this time we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have all these platforms that we're able to do that. Um, and, you know, on the TV, people saw like the school shootings and even that, you know, seemed to kind of like fade um, in the background. But, you know, we as seeing these, these injuries daily um, and for people to post the stories and say like, this is our lane, the hashtag, you know, this is our lane caught on to all the trauma things that were happening all the time. And, and really, you know, getting, tapping into that emotional aspect was so critical um, as well. Now, I know that um, I, in this um, article that I saw before, you mentioned like three keys. Um, now, obviously bipartisanship is, is most helpful. And I a hundred percent agree with you. I think that we have so much more in common that we have in different that, and I think that the only people that are benefiting from divisiveness are the people who are trying to get votes. Um, you know, when you take it to the American people and you take it to everyone and say like, what do you want? Um, majority of the time, you know, we agree. And so for us to kind of, uh, open up the conversation and encourage education and things like that are most helpful. Um, and I know that, and, and tell me if this is still true, that the goal of universal background checks, federal funding for data-driven solutions, and focusing on safe storage and education, is that the still the main pillars of the um, your movement? Well, I mean, I think, look, it's very interesting that you that you asked that. I think here's what I would say, and I, I a lot of people ask this question, they're like, hey, like, they'll often ask it this way, like, what is the one thing that you like want to do, you know, or you think, you know, would solve this problem. And the reality, Dr. McCreese, is that there is no one thing. Mm-hmm. Like any complex public health problem, like it requires multiple solutions, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the stuff that you mentioned, of course, is important, but so is investing in community violence intervention programs, which include things like hospital-based, you know, violence intervention programs. And we know President Biden has committed over $5 billion over eight years, you know, hopefully that passes, right? But that push to, to invest that type of funding in these programs that work is so critical because, you know, you made the point about mass shootings and kind of the attention that they get. Well, guess what? You know, in every day in cities like Baltimore and Chicago and Philadelphia, you have young black men that are being slaughtered on our streets. And we have the responsibility to tell those stories. Now, I will say the media has done recently a better job of starting to tell those stories, but this requires this very kind of um, comprehensive approach that has a variety of solutions. You think about, you know, what's happening in, you know, some of our rural areas, right? Or even in some of the specific demographics like our military men and women, which I know you're all too familiar with, right? Where every day there are 22 veterans that die by suicide. Guess what? Nearly 70% are firearm related. And so you can imagine that all of these different segments that comprise firearm related injury and death may require different solutions and ways to approach them. Yes, and you know, I think I can think of a couple things that really 
um, that we could all get behind. And first is identifying that there's a problem. Second is caring about it. Just like you said, you know, getting to that emotional component to it too. And just like we talked about as well is that action has to follow. You know, we can know what problem is and care about it, but until we do something about it, um, nothing much is going to change. Now, if someone is, you know, a young surgeon and they're interested in the advocacy component, what would be some advice that you would have to them of like, how can you navigate this and how could you be of most use? Where do you start? Because a lot of people just have no idea where to start. Yeah, that's such a great question. And I, I get this all the time. So here's where you start in your own community, in your own backyard. There are people all across America that are doing, and it's not just about gun violence, right? That are incredible advocates and doing work that are part of the social fabric of our communities. And you can imagine that as healthcare professionals, as people that are trusted public messengers, we are a critical to be part of those, you know, solutions, to be part of those conversations, to, you know, really help, you know, kind of meld what's happening in our own backyard. The frustration, you know, that we, I hear often from people about the lack of what's happening at the federal level, I understand and it's true, right? As it relates to gun violence. But let me tell you what, most governing in America happens at the local and state level. And we have seen the temperature change over the past 10 years when you think about gun violence in America. In fact, in 2018, there were over 67 pieces of common sense gun legislation that were passed in states and cities all across this country. You know why? It's because of advocates like you're describing that like were active within their own communities. So I would say like find the people in the community that is like they're doing that work already and like partner with them and engage with them. You'll learn, but also you'll be able to be effective. And I, you know, the last thing I'll say about this is that I, you know why the voter turnout rate in this country is so low is because most people don't think that they can make a difference. And I think once we remove that type of thinking and we realize that no, like actually we can make a difference and each and every one of us have the opportunity to be part of that change, then that's a whole different ballgame. Yes, and you know, I think anyone who's seen some of these elections recently knows just how close a lot of these elections are. And you know, if anything, it's been very helpful to see that every vote does count. Um, and and I think a lot of times, especially if there's landslides, people just give up, thinking, "Well, it doesn't matter." Uh, but I absolutely agree with you. It, of getting involved with your local area because it's doable and it's easy. And you know these people. Throwing our, our expertise in there is certainly very helpful um, in that respect. And, this, and that's something that's doable for everyone. And it seems like, and I know it has, you know, mostly for you, it was like one thing kind of leads to another, leads to another. Um, and then before you know it, you know, you're, you're speaking for, um, you know, all the doctors and all the surgeons. Um, were you surprised to find that you were like all of a sudden sort of thrust into the, the spotlight of, of being the spokesman? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I think, you know, part of it was definitely a surprise. I think you have to have a, a lot of humility in, in what you do. And I've always, again, been very purpose-driven. Uh, I think part of the reason that, uh, you know, I resonated with folks was because I it finally, finally found a way to share my story. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, I never even realized that people 
would care about my story? Who would care about a guy that was shot at the age of 17? But when I realized the importance of being able to kind of, you know, share that story, that allowed me, I think, to, um, to understand the relatability that that brings, you know, first and foremost with the patients that I take care of, right? Where when I share those stories with them, I go from like this guy wearing a white coat to someone that could actually resonate with what these, you know, kids are, have gone through. But it also gave me a different sense of like credibility as someone that, you know, understands what it's like to be a survivor. And now also understands the other, you know, side of that as a trauma surgeon taking care of, you know, these kids day in and day out. And, uh, you know, you're such a, I remember very distinctly what an incredible doctor you are. I, I would say that about actually, you know, all the military men and women that came through, I was very, very impressed with them. And, and you were one of them. And I, I think that, you know, when I think about that moment and, and that experience, like, of course, like, you know, that's so critical to what we do. And as much as I love that part of what we do, um, you'll, I think, be able to appreciate that the worst part of our job, or at least what I think is the worst part of our job, is having to explain to a mom that her child is not coming home. Mm-hmm. And I think when, you know, when you do that, um, it's just, it never gets easier, right? And it's one of those things that continues to weigh on my heart because I realize that these senseless tragedies are preventable. And it's hard. And I think it's one of the things that keeps me getting up every day to try to um, do whatever I can to make sure that we're, you know, saving lives. And, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that too, because I know that before we started recording, we were talking and, you know, I've of course watched your journey from afar for a while now and seeing all the you know tremendous progress that you've made and the um, really shining a light on all these critical lessons. But what that struck out to me is that when I talked to you beforehand, you were talking about the failures that you had, um, which, I mean, and you could just see how much it weighs on you. I think the one thing that we don't learn as surgeons is what failure means and, you know, how often it happens and how it's actually necessary. You know, you're doing a lot and putting yourself out there if you have failures, um, and what is failure anyway? Yeah, well, it's like, what is success, right? I mean, we all define our own success. I mean, I think sometimes defining failure is a little bit more concrete. I mean, if you like, you know, apply for a certain grant or if, you know, whatever, right? I mean, there's, there, I think there's a little bit more distinct ways to do it or if you don't achieve, you know, X, Y, and Z. But, but here's what I would say is like, I think failure does weigh on a lot of us right and like sometimes especially as surgeons like you know i would say even outside of surgery like no one wants to fail but i think failure is a necessary part of the process and in fact it's kind of like you know as a clinical surgeon if you don't have any complications you're either not being honest with yourself or you're not operating enough well if you don't have failure either you're not trying enough or, you know, you're not really seeing kind of, you know, what's really happening around you. Mm-hmm. And I think, of course, you know, 
no one will ever, um, you know, fault me for, for not trying. Um, but that means that, you know, it's come with a lot of disappointment along the way. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, while in the moment, um, you know, it's sometimes hard to deal with failure. No one wants to fail. I think if you talk to most people, like they wouldn't say they want to fail or they, they're not, you know, trying to achieve X because they hope at the end of the day, they, they don't succeed. Um, but there's a lot to learn from failure. I think that's part of maybe um, what you're trying to, you know, imply and, and talk about is, is the value of failing um, sometimes is greater than we realize. And a lot of times- Not to put words in your mouth. No, no. I mean, it, it's all, it's so interesting. And I think actually you said it best. Um, it's how we define it. Uh, when you look at failure, it's uh, not achieving a stated outcome. And it's very interesting because success is achieving a stated outcome. When it comes to success, who states the outcome? Most of the time we do. Now, when you let society or other people or, you know, other people's expectations or your unrealistic expectations you know, uh, create the definition of success, then of course you're set up for failure. The problem we have as surgeons is the gunshot wound victim who dies. We feel like that is a failure because our stated outcome is no one dies. And of course, when you step back and say, is that even possible? You know, what does failure look like in this situation? The patient was shot. We did everything that we could. But after that, I think is where our true successes are. You know, we... Um, align our team and we let them know that they, um, that they can speak their truths and, you know, their vulnerabilities and let them know that they're okay too. Cause everyone on the team is taking it hard. We can go out to that family who is much more forgiving than we are about ourselves all the time. When, you know, we convey to them, we tried our best and they believe us because we know that we did. And a lot of times, and I know that you've seen this before, sometimes it's even more heartbreaking when the family's comforting you. Um, but a lot of times is, is, you know, our, we feel like a failure if the stated outcome didn't happen, but really what it is, is that outcome was always going to happen. It's all the things that we can control where you determine whether you're a success or a failure or not, because it is just a stated outcome. Yeah, I know. I, those are great points. And I would say, you know, if you're not, if you're not having failure, maybe, you need to have more unrealistic ideas of what your stated outcomes are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it reminds me of like people, like it's like, you know, people like shooting for the stars or like people like, you know, if you, if you're, if you're aiming for a hundred percent, you know, maybe you'll get to 80 or 70, but like, if you're aiming for 150, well, maybe you'll get close to, you know, the hundred. And I think that part of that is the mindset of how, we think our own value is to whatever we're doing. Um, I also love your point about like, well, you know, we tried it and we did everything we can. I think in those cases, those are true. And like, they're definitely like what I would say the second victim, you know, model that Dr. Albert Wu from the School of Public Health nicely described, which is like, you know, you have the, your patient that dies, that's that first victim, but then the trauma team, right, is the second victim. But I think the failure in those scenarios is a societal failure. Like the society failed that patient, right? It's not necessarily that like, you know, of course we did everything we could medically uh, possible to try to save their life, but we failed as a society 
to prevent those injuries from happening. And I think that's where like intervening is much harder, right? Because it, mm -hmm. it requires a whole different set of skills that you may or may not have. And that may or may not always be just up to you. Yeah, you have the double-edged sword of the um, the advocate, you know, like because you're trying to present prevent this from the first place. And so if you are not able to be successful in preventing it from the first place, that would feel like a failure. And then you, as a trauma surgeon, try to save them from the societal failure. Um, and then, you know, we're at the, the risk of, of what we can do medically wise. And so you know, we talked a little bit about medicine being the jealous mistress. And I have a feeling that advocacy is a jealous mistress too. And we talked a little bit as well, and we'll kind of close this because I know speaking of balance, <laughs> we talked a little bit about our perceptions of balance. Now, how do you keep all of this in check? Because I imagine that you have endless um, demands on your time and how are you constraining? Not very well. <laughs> Let's just like be honest about that. Like, I think that like, you know, I've had, I've had a very, in general, I think, poor approach to how I, I manage all these different things because of, again, I'm not justifying it, but just my commitment to the cause. Um, that being said, I think it's gotten better recently. And, you know, I've gotten back to doing the stuff that I love to do, like, you know, working out and going out, you know, I'm a foodie. So I love to like, you know, go out with friends and have great dinner and drink good wine. So some of those things that I've started to reintegrate, you know, into my life, because look, the reality is, is a couple things, you know, number one is if you don't take care of yourself, like you're not going to be around to be able to actually accomplish the things that you want to accomplish. And the second part of that, which, you know, not a lot of people are going to tell you, it's that, you know, if something happens to one of us, people will think about you for a week. And then, you know, they move on and the people that are left with those gaps and those holes are the people in your life, your family, your loved ones. And so it's important to kind of think about that and to really, you know, it's not even just about, it's about like personal well-being. Um, and I think the other piece is that like the work never ends, like there's always something else. And so just, you know, being deliberate about the time, how I utilize my time, you know, and, you know, working out is kind of like brushing my teeth. Like I, I wouldn't leave the house without brushing my teeth. So, you know, and now I don't leave without working out. So it's making priorities for those things that are so important. Um, and that's that's what I've tried to do. And by no stretch of the imagination am I perfect at it, but I'm a work in progress. <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, well, this has been absolutely fantastic. I so appreciate this. And I can see this. We can actually probably create a series with you alone. <laughs> I'm sure you have plenty of other incredible people to talk to. <laughs> but nothing, no one quite like you. So Dr. Sekran, it's so good to see you. And I'm so proud of all that you're doing. And especially, you know, starting to realize that, that you need some time um, up there too. I think that's also a really great lesson that we need to learn earlier on is how to make this all sustainable because we, we're all in an unsustainable path if we're not careful. Uh, because yeah. medicine has always been a jealous mistress and you happen to have two mistresses. So <laughs> yeah, I gotta get rid I gotta get rid of at least one of them, I guess. Huh? <laughs> I right, listen, I just want to say before we end, um, you know, I'm so proud of of what you're doing and, and the the courage it took to kind of branch out in the way that you did. And and of course, I, I think you know how much I love our military 
uh, men and women, and just thank you for your service to this country. I think, you know, you are just an example that we can all learn from. So it's so great to, to be able to reconnect with you. Thanks so much, Dr. Sarkin. So good to see you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the show and share it with fellow surgeons. Let's show each other what is possible. You can find more information at bosssurgery.com and the Boss Business of Surgery series Facebook group. Until next time.